As we know in our studies from Hebrews so far, the preacher to the Hebrews has one very big and main priority in terms of addressing his audience, and that very big and main priority is that of helping his hearers uh, understand and respond properly to the, to the absolute superiority and climactic necessity of Jesus Christ and His work. Uh, so at the end of chapter 10, as we know, the preacher has, has uh, having gone through all this truth about who Jesus is and what He's accomplished and what it means to have our salvation fully and finally completed because of what He's done, at the end of chapter 10, the preacher then moves to this exhortation uh, for us to live by faith in that kind of truth. And then all through chapter 11, the preacher gives us these biographical examples from Israel's history of, of what it looks like to live by faith, to live, by, uh, uh, live a life of trusting in God and all He's promised, uh, live a life that continually pursues that kind of truth. And so as we came to the end of chapter 11 last week, th- th- there is a sense in which uh, the end of chapter 11 seems like it could be a perfectly good place for the preacher to bring his sermon to a conclusion. Uh, There's very much a crescendo that takes place there uh, with a kind of climactic and even even community sense that we get at the end of 11 uh, where we're directed to think about all those saints of old being joined together with us in the purifying work that Jesus alone has accomplished and and all that belongs to us now through this this faith. So so there's this, this sense in which we could get to the end of chapter 11 and have one big amen and feel like the preacher's done his job. He's given us extraordinary truths uh, demonstrating the superiority of Christ in chapters 1 through 10. Chapter 10, he's exhorted us to live a life trusting in those truths. Chapter 11, he's given us all these examples of what it looks like to live a life trusting. And then he finishes things by saying Jesus is the one who provides all of this for us. Jesus is the one, whether we're Old Testament or New, Jesus is the one through whom we're all ultimately saved. And with that, the sermon could be over. Only as we know, uh, like, like can sometimes happen in preaching, a natural ending point isn't the ending point that the preacher chooses uh, to, to make use of. He keeps going. Um, and, and he keeps going into chapter 12, not because he hasn't finished uh, giving instruction to these Christians. He doesn't keep going just because he's got a few uh, maybe, maybe personal greetings to offer, like we find a lot of times at the end of, of uh, letters in the New Testament. But what we discover is that the preacher keeps going into chapter 12 because this central topic that he's been working out in the end of chapter 10 and then into 11 uh, is something that he's not done working out for us quite yet. He's not done working out for his audience what it means to live by faith. Because as we see in the beginning of chapter 12, he moves from the, the directive to live by faith in chapter 10 through the examples of chapter 11, now to give us this metaphor. He gives us this word picture of a, of a, of a foot race, a running race, to help us uh, sew up our understanding of what it really means to live out this life of faith. Uh, because in this, in this word picture, the preacher is now communicating from, from one other angle what it means to persevere in the Christian life. We've had the the directive to do so. We've had the examples of how it goes and and what happens. And now he's going to give us this this final imagery uh, just to depict how uh, we can have our own thinking formed in terms of uh, what a life of perseverance looks like. And so he speaks to us about this athletic event, this running of the race. And as we think about this passage in Hebrews, and if we're familiar with our Bibles, it's not surprising that the preacher would use this kind of running imagery. 
Uh, we know the Apostle Paul in his own letters, he regularly speaks of the Christian life in athletic metaphors. He, he makes reference to his own ministry, uh, likening it to running a race so that he can win the prize. He talks about his own spiritual discipline as being like uh, that of a boxer who disciplines himself. Um, the athletic metaphor in the Christian life is one that we run across a number of times in the New Testament. And, and it's the same kind of picture that the preacher to the Hebrews now wants us to have in our minds as uh, we continue to work out what it means to live by faith. And we can understand uh, why the preacher to the Hebrews has decided to employ this kind of metaphor. Uh, because we know, just from reading through the book, that at least on two other occasions, the preacher has had to address the original audience of Hebrews for their life of being, of being couch potatoes, if you like, in terms of their Christian, uh, their Christian experience. They've grown lazy. They've grown uh, lackadaisical. They've grown slothful in their pursuit of what it means to follow Jesus. And so this imagery would be helpful just in terms of, of providing a mindset for them. He's helping them see that there is a kind of strenuousness to the Christian life. There's, a, there's an overcoming of weariness that needs to take place. There's an element of, of discipline and training. There's this grace-compelled strain that attends us as we go on in the way of Jesus. And, and the first audience needed to be reminded of this truth, and, and it always serves as an important reminder for us as well, just to think about the fact that, that Christianity, as we know, is not a call to a, kind of, to a kind of spectatorship where we watch the world go by, waiting, uh, waiting finally for, uh, for Christ to come and all to be set right. We don't sit back and watch uh, this happen from a kind of reclined position of, of, of presumption upon God's grace or anything like that, but instead the Christian life is an active life. Uh, so much so that Paul can even go on to say that living the Christian life is, is much like being involved in a war. It's spiritual warfare. It's far from sedentary. We could put it that way. And, and so it's a passage like this that helps remind us of that fact. We, we need to be encouraged in the activity that we're called to engage in as followers of Jesus. And we need to do so not, not in terms of thinking it as a, as, as a point of, of earning our salvation. We know very well from the book of Hebrews that it is Jesus who's accomplished the totality of our salvation for us. However, we are now operating from a place of following faithfully in that path that Christ has opened up. And by His strength, we're called to exert effort and press on. And so it's no surprise that the preacher uh, doesn't just work out what a life of faith looks like biographically and then end things, but instead he, he goes on to bring this imagery uh, to, the, to the attention of his hearers, this athletic kind of imagery. And, and so we see that in the first two verses of chapter 12, that, that the life of faith we're called to live is uh, very much like a race that we're called to run. And so, and so uh, we're, going to, we're going to consider this actually... And I told the first service there's some irony in, in what I'm about to tell you. In terms of endurance and running the long distance, uh, we're actually going to take two weeks to talk about two verses. So, so we're not running very far, but, but we're going to talk about running far out of these two verses. Here, but here's why we're going to take two weeks with this. Here's why. We, we, have, we have a paradigm here that we need to understand. So we're going to talk about verses 1 and 2 a bit this week. But then in verse 2, in verse two we have probably... Uh, the, the, the grandest description of Jesus in one verse in the whole Bible, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. 
there's enormous truth about Jesus that's there. And we'll see why we need to be able to sit with that and, 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 and kind of indulge ourselves in that truth when we get there in our studies today. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through 1 and 2 this week. And we're going uh, to see how it fits together. And then next week, we're going to come back. And I don't know another word except the word indulge. Indulge in the amazing truths about Jesus that are there. Because ultimately what we're going to discover is it's those kind of truths that we need to have big and fresh in our minds if we're really going to run this race race well. So we don't want to just read past it quickly, but we want to, we want to let it simmer, uh, which, is, which is what we'll take the time to do next week. So uh, today we'll, we'll call this part one uh, in terms of thinking about how the, the life of faith is this race that we're called to run. And, uh, and, and to start with, we'll, we'll begin looking at this athletic metaphor that's here, <clears throat> beginning in verse one, where the preacher references what we'll call uh, the encouragement of witnesses. The encouragement of witnesses. So, so verse 1, if you look at that, <clears throat> if you look at that, it reads, uh, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. So, uh, obviously, the, the preacher is connecting what he's about to say here with what he's already been speaking about back in chapter 11. The, the therefore makes that clear. All of these witnesses are there. All of these, all these people are there. The biographies of living a life of faith are there. Now, therefore, what conclusion do we draw from this, uh, given the fact that as we look down the, uh, look down the page at those lives of faithful men and women who, who have run the race, uh, what, what, what can we glean from the fact that we're surrounded by these, by these witnesses? Um, and so, and so what we find the preacher doing is looking back at all those men and women who are referenced in that biographical section, and, and he refers to them as this large cloud of witnesses which surround us. Now, um, a, couple, a couple things are interesting to note here. Number one, this terminology, cloud of witnesses, it sounds a little bit strange to us, uh, but in the Greco-Roman world, uh, referring to a large group of people, especially as they gather, uh, say, for an athletic event at a coliseum or something of that nature, uh, they would be referred to as, as, as a cloud of people. Uh, now, we, we don't use that kind of idiomatic language. We, we, we wouldn't say, you know, the last Blazer game I got to go to, it was really amazing to be with such a, with, with such a cloud of people. That, that sounds weird for us to say. But, but that's the kind of language that was common in the day. And the preacher here is picking up on that as he begins to reference this, this athletic event where we think of this whole big group of people there in a coliseum witnessing, uh, witnessing this, this event that's going on. And, and so with that in mind, we do need to have a, a little theological clarity about the reference that's made here. Because some will take this passage and, and think that a cloud of witnesses is, is this Old Testament group that's here before um, in chapter 11. But, but they're up in heaven now watching us as we currently uh, live out our Christian lives. And then some will even extrapolate from there and say that, say that uh, my loved ones, for example, who've passed on before, they're watching me from above and things like that. Uh, the, the only trouble with that view is, well, it's not the only, but it's some, some of the trouble, it, it just seems to push the literalism of this metaphor a little bit too far. It gets a little too, uh, too tied up, mainly because nowhere else in the Scriptures uh, do we read about those who have died now continuing to observe us. Uh, the orientation of, 
of us in death as we go and are with Christ is toward him and what he's bringing about in the history of the world, not looking back down wondering how, how Aunt Mabel is doing or something like that. Scripture doesn't, doesn't speak about that. So when, when we come to something like this, it's a little tricky to understand. We always want to hold out that first rule of biblical interpretation where we try to make uh, sense of Scripture with Scripture. And, and so that, that helps us uh, maybe maybe put this in the right frame. We don't need to be thinking about uh, this as being uh, this cloud of witnesses who are who are staring at us as we run along in our life of faith, especially when we connect this back to chapter 11 and remind ourselves what all of these people have been bearing witness to. Well, what have they all been witnessing to in chapter 11? Their, their testimony. Their testimony, they haven't been testifying to how we're doing in our race, but all down through chapter 11, uh, the, the witness that they're bearing is to the fact that this life of faith isn't something that's outside the realm of attainment, but this life of faith is something that God empowers His people, even as weak and frail as they are, like we know from the people in this list, God empowers His people to actually live out this life of faith. So, so as it is, it's, it's like the, the stands of the stadium are already full of people who have competed in this race of faith and they finished the course. We're going to be called to run here in a moment, run this race set before us. And as we're called to do that, it's as if we're looking out into this vast stadium of people who have already, who have already run the race and finished well. And in that, we're surrounded by all of these finishers which help compel our own persevering. This reality of finishing is held out as a, as a very genuine reality for us, which is just something we need to be able to, to camp on for a minute in terms of what it means to live this life of faith. And, and I was thinking about this this week, just, um, oh, given different things that go on and things we read about, I, I, was, I was thinking about this th this week as it relates to, um, I mean, this is personal for me, but as it relates to things I've seen in pastors' lives who foul out in pastoral ministry. So, so let me just run, run through this all the way. Oftentimes, uh, we find ourselves reading the news or the Twitter feed or whatever it may be, and we'll read of a minister who again has fouled out in the Christian life. Uh, extrapolate a little further from that, uh, we all will know the people who have claimed profession of faith in Christ, but then ultimately uh, find that they're not following Jesus by the end. They, they, morally, they, uh, they become all twisted up. They go away from Christ and all these, all these things happen. We're, we're, in a sense, used to hearing about that, so much so that it can become quite the discouragement for us as we persevere in the faith. It can be a discouragement to me as a pastor to read about another pastor who fouled out there again and then these kinds of things go on. So much so that uh, we can find ourselves wondering what really is the, uh, the crossing the finish line statistic for those who are pursuing Christ. Uh, just because we can have in our minds these, uh, these people who, who, have, who have fouled out for a variety of reasons and we can start thinking to ourselves, man, this sure seems more common than not. In fact, we hear people talk that way. It just seems more common than not that pastors do this or that or, or whatever it is or other people we, that we might know who are in the Christian faith. And a passage like this comes to us and helps us realize that actually the cloud of, of witnesses that is there testifying to the finishing of the race is such that we are directing our attention not to the, not to the minority who might foul out, but we're actually supposed to set our eyes, set, set the direction of our thinking on this great cloud of those who has actually persevered and finished. 
It's a mindset that shifts from thinking about the one or two who may have fouled out, again, back to the pastoral example, to thinking about the hundreds of thousands of faithful gospel ministers who will serve their congregations this week and who will, in time, retire and not have to resign, having served Christ well for the totality of their ministry. The same kind of thing is here. We're being directed to see that finishing well is what we ought to expect as those who are following Jesus. We don't want to be too crushed down by hardships, too crushed down by the things we see going on in others' lives, maybe where they deviate from the reality of Christ and following Him. Instead, we want to have in our view this whole great big group of people, which in fact the preacher emphasizes here, it's such a large cloud, not a medium-sized cloud, it's such a large cloud of witnesses who have gone on before and they have subsequently finished the race in such a way that we can take great encouragement from which which of course is is a big part of the of the message to to the hebrews just in terms of of what uh defines being a true christian believer where we read in hebrews chapter 3 verse 14 that, that we have become participants in christ if we hold firmly to the end the reality that we had at the start we have become participants in christ if we hold firm to the end by very definition of what it means to be in christ The very definition of that is actually holding firm to the end. This is what Christian people do. This is what people who are in the faith do. They persevere. They go on. And so we have the encouragement of the witnesses here. Look at this vast cloud of those who have been through some some rough stuff. I mean, we just think down the list. These are people who are frail. These are people who, who, who... knew what it is to struggle with significant sin. These are people who had challenges that were extraordinary, and yet what do we find? There they are at the end, having persevered and now been commended by God for their belief. It's a glorious picture because we know ourselves, and we're weak. We know ourselves in our frailty. We know ourselves in our battle against sin. And yet here we are able to look at this vast throng of individuals who have gone on before and completed things. And so, the, and so there's just a, a big word of encouragement for us in that. This witness uh, group that's here serves to encourage our own perseverance. And as we think about that, we're then, we're then compelled really to, to direct our attention to the, to the main uh, point of instruction that's made in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Uh, so we're going to jump in the verse a little bit just to make sure our, our, uh, our main thing is main here, the way he's grammatically constructed things. The main directive that the preacher goes on to give us then in Hebrews 12, verse 1, is that of running the race. So since we have this cloud of witnesses, since you see how many people have gone on before and finished well, they've they've been faithful, they've trusted in God to the end, since we have all of this, what are we called to do? Well, we're called uh, to what's depicted here as as this foot race. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. So when it comes to thinking about this life of faith, the preacher is is equating it with this this, uh, athletic event of a foot race. And, and we know running a race is no small thing. Uh, we see people training for marathons. Some of you have, have done longer races. The, the imagery here is, is intensive in terms of what it represents because running a race requires a great deal of discipline. Uh, for those who run races, there's, there's restriction involved in terms of training time and, and diet and all of those things. I'm friends uh, with a lady on Facebook, and uh, she, she regularly posts uh, what she calls the five at five. And what the five at five refers to, she, she's a marathon runner, she's, an, she's quite the athlete, 
Um, but she gets up at 5 o'clock every morning with five of her friends, and they all run for a really long time together. And then she puts a picture up on Facebook just to make me feel bad when I see it later. But, but, but the, the five at five is there, uh, week, week, uh, day, day in and day out. And, uh, and, and I read that, and it sounds like possibly the most unappealing thing in the world. Um, not only to get up at five in the morning and run, but to get up at five in the morning and have to see five other people. That, that's, that's, that's challenging. Um, but, but, but here she is with this commitment and these other gr- this, this group of people uh, constrained to this task of training uh, there in the morning because these people are ath- athletes. They, they've disciplined their lives, their time in such a way that it's oriented toward what remains necessary if they're going to compete in the races uh, that, they're, that, they're, that they're committed to. And so just the familiarity of the running imagery alone in this section helps us to understand what it looks like to live by faith in terms of our own expectations. A life of persevering faith isn't something that you just fall into. You don't just fall into running a seven and a half minute mile. I wish that that was true, but you just don't. A racer's life is a disciplined life. The life of faith is a disciplined life. Which again addresses the preacher's concern for the spiritual laziness that has existed in the first hearers of this letter. That they were becoming slothful in their, followers of, of, in their following of Jesus. So the preacher, he says to them, this life of faith isn't a, isn't a sitting down kind of thing. It's not a reclining and, and just let life happen kind of thing. It's not a posture of merely uh, getting by this Christian life. But instead it's this life of trust-filled, uh, grace-compelled significant exertion. It's a run. And, and, it's, and it's not just the exertion of a sprinter here, as we think about how he phrases things. Uh, so it's not like we're getting on the track, we're going really fast for a little bit, and then we're jumping off. No, the life of faith, as he says, it's an endurance race. Let's run the race with endurance. I mean, we know for a runner that endurance means a, a kind of disciplined training that, that ends up uh, being able to persevere through through. Uh, pain through fatigue, uh, discipline training involves for the runner not just being able to, uh, to go on for a little bit and then needing a break, but instead, even through those periods where the energy drops and, and we just uh, don't have the stamina we'd like to have, those, those people are still running through uh, that kind of season, which of course is an extremely a significant point of application for us in our Christian lives because we can go through the Christian life committed to run, getting up early to run or whatever it might be, and then all of a sudden our joints start hurting. The back hurts a little bit. The breathing is labored. These kinds of things come. And we find ourselves in a place of, of thinking, you know, maybe I just ought to sit, sit off on the sidelines for a little while. Uh, this running by faith thing has become uh, kind of hard. Uh, I would just like to take a little bit of a break, and then maybe I'll get back to it later. But we all know what happens when you take a break from the exercise routine. Speaking personally, it's very, very few that come back. And the same thing is true in a life of faith. It's not as if we sit, on, sit off on the side thinking that, well, maybe I'll catch my breath and get going. No, as we go on in the life of faith, we need to have a, a sturdy understanding of the fact that we must keep running down the track instead of letting up in these kinds of ways simply because the call to a faithful life is not a life of ebbs and flows. It's a life of constant, though at times painful and even breathless, but it's this life of constantly turning and returning to the realities of the gospel and going along in that way which is going to be a significant word for the church in general, even as we come through this season of, of all this coronavirus business. Because there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which uh, 
many, not you people, I've been so thankful for all of you, but just in the church in general, many have, have pulled back. I have a pastor friends who talk about how they don't know uh, what, what happened to a bunch of their congregation. They haven't seen them. They're not online. They're, they're going away. There's this break that has come, in a sense, from regular church community. And as a result, what have people found themselves doing? Well, they found themselves sitting down in their Christian life. And it's a dangerous thing to do that. And so a passage like this, it renews us in our compulsion, not just, the, not just in the fact that the race of faith is in fact this run we're engaging in, but it's also one that requires stamina as, as an endurance course. And it's a course that, that God Himself has laid out for us. Uh, the language that's here uh, represented where, where He tells us that we're running the race light, uh, that lies before us. It's actually a technical terminology from Greek athletics. Uh, describing how the, the running course is laid out by the master of the games. Um, in, in other words, the, the way the course will go, the direction the course is headed, all of that is laid out uh, by, the, by the master of ceremonies, so to speak. And as we think about that in relationship to the Christian life, we understand the course we're called to run is laid out by God Himself, who is the master of ceremonies of the race of faith. He's laid it out in such a way that there's this track we're called to run on. And, and like the Hebrews would know, there can be these temptations that come to, de- to decide that another track looks more appealing. Right? They're thinking, you know, we're, we're going along here on the track of faith, trusting in Jesus, but we're looking at that old covenant track over there, and it looks pretty nice. There's not the trouble, there's not the hills, there's not the, uh, the ups and downs like on our track right here. Maybe we'll go over there and participate in that a little bit, and then maybe jump back onto this, uh, this, this uh, racetrack a little later on. So we have this call to run the race of faith. We can see how important it is. Uh, we recognize that this isn't a competition to see who finishes first, uh, but instead... Uh, this, this endurance that's set before us is something that we are compelled to, uh, to, to run in uh, based, on, based on what Jesus has ultimately accomplished. Uh, and and, and we're, we're, we're back in this sphere of reminding ourselves that perseverance is an enormous part of what it means to be a faithful Christian believer. As the saying goes, uh, the gospel doesn't put, uh, puts an end to earning, but not an end to effort. So we're, we're compelled to keep going uh, in these ways. And, and, and we know we need that kind of help because uh, to actively engage in the endurance activity of the gospel life, it can be a significant thing for us. And in the endurance race of the Christian life, you know, we can encounter family members who don't understand why we've yielded to Jesus, and that can be a significant obstacle and difficulty for us. Or we may be going along, and, and even now with the current climate of things in the world around us, when, when everything is twisted up and hurting, and we long so much uh, for, 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 for justice to reign, as it were, and for things to be set right as we look around, knowing that ultimately that can never fully happen, though we work toward it, but that can never fully happen until Jesus returns. Even in context like we live in socially right now, we can grow weary waiting for Jesus to come and make it so thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Uh, those, those are contexts of endurance for endurance for us and then we realize those we must keep going in this life of faith even though even though there can be times uh, that cause us to be uh, short of breath our joints can ache uh, these things do happen so the endurance nature of the christian life is is just real for us which paul is very honest about isn't he when he talks about his own apostolic ministry to the corinthians he, he says he says things like we're afflicted in every way but not crushed you know well what does that mean well we're we're, we're out of breath but we're not quitting, is what he said. We're perplexed, but not in despair. 
We're persecuted but not abandoned. We're struck down but not destroyed. Paul sounds out of breath as he's been running. He's been going up some pretty big hills. But what is his point in all that? Even though those kinds of things come, they in no way dissuade us from the main tasks that we're called to run. And we just keep going. We keep going. And by God's grace, he gives us, he gives us the help we need. So uh, we have this encouragement of the witnesses here. And then here we have these testimonies. Uh, of, of, of faith that now compel us in our own response to, to run the race. We want to run with endurance, um, which, which we understand. And again, these metaphors appear in the scriptures regularly. And so we have, uh, we have our mind around, around these kinds of things. We expect a level of strenuousness when it comes to uh, living for Jesus. We, we know this is the case. Uh, the real question that, that begins to creep into our minds is the how-to question. How, how does it really work to do this well? What, what do we need to engage in order to actually run this race of faith in a, in a conquering kind of way? Uh, which, which is a big question and a question that the Bible has, has, has many answers to. But it is a question that the preacher uh, is going to give a very practical response to in these verses right here. And, and we actually see that he provides a two-part answer to the how-to question of running by faith. In these verses, and again, we get this from the from the way he does things grammatically. Uh, if you can bear with that for just a moment, we've got that main verb there where we're called to run. That's the command that he's given. Uh, but then around that, he's told us, for example, in verse one, uh, he's given us a, a participial phrase to explain how that running is going to look. He says, "Let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us." So that's how we're going to run. We need to lay some things aside that could hinder us. And then secondly, we also run the race by keeping our eyes on Jesus and so on in verse 2. So there's these two ways in which he describes the how-to factor uh, for our perseverance of the faith as we, as we, as we run this race. And, uh, and so what we'll do is we'll just kind of see how these things fit in. And again, we'll take much more time with verse 2 next time, but we'll put it all together here. Um, so, so the question comes, how do we engage <clears throat> in this race of faith? How, how do we run well? And, and the first answer to that question is found in this laying aside of hindrances and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So, so in other words, in order to run well, there's some extra stuff that needs to be shed from our life. Um, it's interesting to note that the language the preacher is using here is language that Paul's a big fan of using, Peter uses it, James does too. Uh, in their letters, it's translated a little differently, where it's often referred to as putting, putting off, you know, like putting off and putting on, like in, in Colossians 3, where Paul talks about putting off anger and malice and those kinds of things. That's what this laying aside uh, is, is translating here, same kind of concept, um, so, so in the context of the racing metaphor, though, that, that becomes a very helpful picture to give because literally it refers to uh, like taking off a coat that, that, that uh, we, we want to be rid of. So, so just like it would be counterproductive for someone to, uh, to run a race wearing this great big jacket with their pockets full of quarters, right? And in terms of what's being depicted here, if we're going to run the race of faith, we need to take off the things that would hinder our progress and weigh us down. And so along these lines, the preacher identifies uh, two categories uh, in terms of the things we need to put off or do away with. Uh, he sp speaks of putting off every hindrance, and then he speaks of, more specifically, of putting off sin that can ensnare us. <clears throat> but in other words, there, there are factors in our Christian life that need to be dealt with if we're going to be able to keep going at a race-finishing pace. Uh, these things that hinder us need to be put away, um, and, and they, can, they can start to impede our progress. 
And those can be very general. I mean, they could be any number of things, things that aren't necessarily sinful. There's a differentiation made here in this text between hindrances and the sins that can tangle us up. So, so there can just be these things that come along that start to occupy an unhealthy place, a kind of burdensome place for us in our race of faith. I have a, a pastor friend in North Dakota, and he, he talks regularly. When, when, when we have a chance to talk almost every time, he brings up the fact that um, one of his biggest challenges in this small town in North Dakota is that during baseball season, he loses about half his congregation for a number of Sundays, um, like the the kids' baseball program in town. Many people stop coming to church for a big chunk of time, and then on top of that, he goes back and and, uh, references the fact that when they do come back, if they do come back, uh, there's significant struggle that's developed in their life as they've been away from the people of God, from, from the Word of God being preached and all these things for a while. It's very damaging to them. So in his context, he's continually having to speak about the fact that, that this, this schedule, well, while obviously playing baseball for kids in this small town is an absolutely wonderful thing, and he wouldn't want to do away with it entirely, but it can become a hindrance in that uh, they're removed from these means of grace that allows them to keep persevering uh, well in, in the Christian life. And so, and so we just need to be aware of those kinds of things that can exist. Uh, there are these things that aren't morally wrong per se, but they can come in and weigh us down to a point where we're significantly impaired in our running. Um, so one minister from the 17th century uh, by the name of Manton, he, he put it this way, and I love the language he uses, He said, the heart may be overcharged with the delights of the world. The heart may be overcharged with the delights of the world. There's a sense in which the delights of the world are our delights. They are God's good gift to us. There's so much of of God's kindness extended to us in in all kinds of things the world over, from, from the mountains to the hobbies we have. There's wonderful things given to us. Where we start to struggle is when we become overcharged with those things. And so that gives us something to think about. We can, we can ask ourselves, as I'm going along in the Christian life, is my heart overcharged by certain things that need to be set down? And, and I tell you, I told the first service this as well. I, I think sometimes the reason God gave me the privilege of preaching is because He knows I need to sit with the text for 20 hours where the rest of you just need to sit with it for 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, but even sitting under this text this week, I, there, there's a couple hindrances I realized I needed to put down in my life in a certain way. They needed to be going in another direction. And we need to be able to to be aware of those and recognize those. And and then also, like we read here, it's not just hindrances in general that can hamper our race, but sin in particular can slow us down. In fact, there's there's a little bit of a play on words in the Greek language in verse 1 where we're told, remember in the beginning, that the, the, the cloud of witnesses surround us. Well, that that same kind of language is actually used again here. It's translated ensnare with regard to sin. But he also said this, that there can be sin that comes in and surrounds us. So so where the cloud of witnesses surround us for our encouragement, the sin can come into our life and surround us in 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 a constricting kind of way, in a way that tangles us up and hinders our progress. And we know that, that sin is a tangly business. All, all that's contrary to God's way of life, it, it twists us up and it, and it does so by degrees, even as this, chap, even as this uh, metaphorical picture indicates coming around us. Uh, it, it does so by degrees and that and lies beget more lies and anger begets more strife, envy, envy begets more discontent. Uh, there's this kind of constricting nature of sin where uh, though it doesn't have ultimate power in our lives, it can creep in and start to squeeze us in ways as we, as we yield to it. 
Later in this chapter, we'll see how things like bitterness and sexual immorality, even, even a lack of general reverence toward God because of the blessings He gives. These are sins that, that were tangling up the first audience. They can tangle us up. Chapter 13, we read about how the love of money and, and a general attitude of dissatisfaction, those kinds of things can tangle us up. Sin, sin is this, is this uh, uh, tighter, tighter circle, this constricting, tangly kind of business. So, so the preacher is saying these are the things that need to be laid aside. They need to be put off like a, like a ridiculously heavy coat that we could never run in well. Those things need to be taken off and set down if we're really going to go on in, in a way that is, uh, that is ultimately uh, faithful in this race that's set before us. And, and as we think about that, we, we recognize the significant help that's there. We know uh, that, that there are things we do need to put off as we go on in the, in, in, in the Christian life uh, that, that's very helpful in terms of a how-to uh, as we engage, but uh, really that is only half the answer, especially as we read the Scriptures, because we know from the Bible that the way we put off what is contrary to the Gospel is accomplished not by just trying to be rid of that thing really, really hard. You know, I really want to be, be, be done with those things that are twisting me up and I, I want those things to be gone, but the way the Scriptures help us understand how to do that, uh, how to put off those things, is not by a dwelling on the putting off, but actually in the putting on of the righteous counterpart to those things. And then it's that righteous alternative to the things that hinder us that we have in the second how-to directive here for running, which again we're going to spend a bunch of time on next week, but we just need to see how it fits here. Verse 2, we run not just by laying aside, putting off the things that weigh us down and sins that tangle us up, but we do that, even we do that, by keeping our eyes on Jesus. You see, there's this adjustment in focus. We're putting one thing off and we're fixing our gaze on something else, which is so critical to understand in our Christian lives. Because oftentimes, we can feel the weight of the things that need to be removed, and as we feel the weight of those things that need to be removed, maybe it's the bitterness or the, the hurt or the habitual struggles with sin, all of those kinds of things, as we feel the burden of those things, it's those things in our life that we tend to focus our attention on. We want to be rid of them. We focus on them. We're constantly concerned with those things. They hold our gaze as we desire them so badly to be gone. And while, and while giving hindrances a level of proper attention is important, those things in our lives that reflect uh, sins done by us or d done to us by others, those things can leave us in, in, in tangly places. And at the same time, they are not things that have rights to the majority of our attention. And we need, to, we need to understand that clearly. Our gaze is one that is not primarily occupied with those things we need to be done with, but instead our gaze is set positively on the realities of Jesus and who He is and what it means to follow Him. We put off the tangly sins by putting on a focused gaze at Jesus. And in that place, I find myself with much less time and energy to get further twisted up in those things I long to be rid of. So it's Robert Murray McShane, who is the Scottish minister from the 19th century, he put it so wisely when he said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And that's just such helpful wisdom to really explain what's going on here in this race of faith mentality that's being developed. Ultimately, our gaze isn't on us in a way that's consumed with these things that tangle us up. Now, ultimately, if we're really going to run our gaze, we need to be consumed by the exemplary Jesus. Because as the glories of who He is begin to dominate our minds and hearts, 
we're able to put things out of our minds that would otherwise hinder us and keep us down. We, we put away those things that would keep me from that main course that he calls me to run. And as I look to him, the one who's actually done this faithful living thing perfectly and climactically, as I look to him, I'm able to be drawn along in the course that I need to run as well. And so we see why it's going to be so important next week to spend time in chapter 12, verse 2. Because he gives us a whole bunch of truth there about Jesus that we can train ourselves by and set our minds on in order to be running this race of life well. We don't need to sit and and spend great amounts of time thinking about the sin that tangles us up, although we don't want to neglect doing that. But the main focus of our energy is the glories of Jesus Christ. And as we set our minds there, the other things fall into place or fall away as they need to. And so that's why next week we want, we want to take the time uh, j- just to indulge in the, in the significance of what we're told about Jesus in chapter 12, verse 2. We need to have these things in our minds so we can go out on Monday morning with our eyes fixed in, in, in a proper kind of way. So in all, in all this, we, we just find the preacher here very, very helpful and, and quite practical. Chapter 10, we live by faith, okay? Chapter 11, here's a whole bunch of examples of what it looks like to live by faith, okay? Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, so run the race. It's time to go. It's time to get out there and uh, persevere in trusting in the Lord Jesus, laying aside the things that would tangle us up and fixing our gaze on the one who, who ultimately saves us. Um, and, so, and so we're helped by this as we consider it, and, and Lord willing, we'll be helped by it uh, more next week as we consider the rest of what's here. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that uh, we would be able to see Christ for who he is, that uh, the things that tangle us up would... Uh, fall by the wayside as we consider the significance of Jesus, the uh, perfection of his work, uh, the sacrifice, the uh, eternal hope that he's obtained for us and all these things. May we look forward uh, to the end of our own journey uh, because Christ is the one who has opened up that finishing way. And we, we would ask this in his name. Amen.